0: On the one hand, there's a problem of depression, of discouragement, despondency. And on the other hand, there's the issue of pride, arrogance, of being full of oneself. How can we individually, ourselves, have... Confidence in who we are, but not be too proud. How can we be humble, but not be too depressed and despondent? Have you ever felt this tension, either in your own life or in the lives of those around you, where someone's lacking self-esteem, so do we give them more Encouragements about how great they are, only to see them get puffed up with pride and arrogance? Have we ever tried to encourage someone who is proud and full of themselves to be humbled, only to see them fall into great depression? Maybe you're on one end of this spectrum or the other. But the good news of the gospel is this. Tim, Quell- Tim Keller succinctly summarizes the tension we need to hold on to every day so we do not fall into either the pride and arrogance of being full of ourselves or in the humility or the false humility that's despondent in despair. Keller says, We are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. My friends, that one sentence is the sentence I hope you leave here today with. I'm going to use it as the outline of today's passage. If we look at verses 20 to 24 of Matthew chapter 11, I think we will see that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, if we keep reading the text and get to one of the most Christologically beautiful gems of the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, you will see that at the very same time you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. Sadly, Too many people, I think, only know the last part of this text. Maybe you have a coffee cup, maybe some sort of design quilted somewhere where it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's beautiful. It's great, and it's glorious. But let's read the whole paragraph before it. It's not so beautiful. Starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the critics where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, Let's pause there and consider that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Jesus is an honest, truth-speaking prophet. Many people have tried to summarize who Jesus is by saying he is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. Not just any of these, but the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. In this particular passage, we're going to especially see in this first point that he is speaking and acting like a prophet. He is using the words of a prophet. He is, in fact, quoting prophets. Everything that he is doing sounds just like reading the book of Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. Jesus is being a prophetic preacher. And what he is doing is he is saying woe to three different cities. Notice first the first two in verse 22 or 21. Chorazin and Bethsaida. Then a third city in verse 23, Capernaum. All three of these cities are closely related around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus started out his public ministry and did all kinds of miracles, as you see being alluded to in this text. In verse 20, it says that most of his mighty works had been done in these cities. As we'll see, these cities did not repent. That's why Jesus speaks out so harshly to them. And he compares them to Tyre and Sidon. This does take a bit of an explanation because if we're just opening up our Bibles and reading it, there's a reason why this has not made it on our coffee cups or on the side of our wall. It's not just because we don't want to have woe to you on the side of our furniture or something, but also because we probably have no idea who Tyre and Sidon are. So who's Tyre and Sidon? Well, they're cities, very wealthy trading cities, right along the Mediterranean coasts. They were Canaanite cities, and if you don't know, Canaanites were enemies of the Jewish people. So he names two cities that were wealthy, that were prosperous, and they were enemies of the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to. During the days of Solomon, Solomon, king the king of Tyre, helped build Solomon's Temple. If you read 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 7, you'll hear this. Blessed be Yahweh, who has given to David a wise son over this great people. That's from the lips of the king of the city of Tyre. He is praising Yahweh. He is supporting and contributing to the temple. And as a result, 1 Kings five twelve says, There was now peace between what was once enemy cities, Tyre and Sidon, and the nation of Israel. This peace, however, did not last when a princess from Sidon Namely, Jezebel, a wicked woman, if you've ever read these stories, persecuted Israel's prophets and reestablished the Canaanite worship of Baal, forsook the God of the Israelites. So if you would, let's turn with me and do a little background here in the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to turn to Ezekiel and we're going to see a prophecy against Tyre. And this is going to be Ezekiel chapter 27. And if you're using these black Bibles around, I'd encourage you to open them up and see follow along. I'm going to read verses three through nine at first, and you're going to get a sense of what Tyre and Sidon are like, their wealth, their prosperity. And then we're going to skip ahead in the same chapter of chapter 27, and you're going to see the great downfall of Tyre and Sidon. So starting in verse three of chapter 27 on page 714 in those black Bibles around you, the word of the Lord comes and says, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your deck of pines from the coasts of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. Of fine embroiled linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Blue and purple from the coasts of Elisha was your awning. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. The elders of Gebal. And her skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. All the ships of the sea with their marners were in you to barter for your wares. What you're supposed to see in this chapter is the perfect beauty of this great, rich, and prosperous merchant trading city right on the waters. And that's why you see all this language about boats and ships and rows. But then skip ahead. Look at verses 26 to 32. Your towers have brought you out into the high seas. Your rowers have brought you out into the high seas. The east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Your riches, your wares, your merchandise, your marners, and your pilots, your caulkers, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you with all your crew that is in your midst sink into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. The sound of the cry of your pilots, the countryside shakes. And down from their ships come all who handle the oar. The mariners and the pilots of the sea stand on the land and shout aloud over you and cry out bitterly. They cast dust on their heads and wallow in ashes. They make themselves bald for you and put sackcloth on their waist and they weep over you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. In their wailing they rise a lamentation for you, a lament over you, who is like Tyre? Like one destroyed in the midst of the sea. That question is, what I want you to be feeling now. This great and wealthy city, they're now asking, Who is like Tyre? Not because of its prosperity, but because of its desolation. They turned back to a false god and rejected Yahweh by persecuting his prophets and were destroyed. And so it leaves us to question, what could be worse than this turn of events to the city of Tyre? Well, I could think of one city. One prominent city that's used throughout all of the Old Testament as a metaphor for evil and judgment. Turn with me in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 18. This is the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in chapter 18 that Abraham and his cousin Lot have traveled over to the place where Sodom exists. And so it says in verse 22 on page 13 of the black Bibles around you, that the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord and then drew near and said, I will spare the whole place for their sake. If you keep reading, you'll know if you've been familiar with this text, but if you've not, Abraham's then gonna go back and forth with the Lord in prayer and say, well, how about 45? How about 40? 30? 20? And at the very end, he says, how about even 10? If there's 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, would you spare them and not wipe them out? And he says, if there's even 10 people in this city, I will not wipe them out. I will spare them. So then what we find in chapter 19 is the story that shows there were not ten. Starting in verse 1, it says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and the Lot, sitting in the gate of Sodom, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square, but he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my shelter, the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry to his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, "'One said, escape for your life. "'Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. "'Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. "'Lot said to him, oh no, my lords. "'Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, "'and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, "'but I cannot escape to the hills, "'lest the disaster overtake me and I die. "'Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, "'and it is a little one. "'Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? "'And my life will be saved. "'He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also.' That I may not overthrow the city of which you have spoken, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when the Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, sulphur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities, and the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst to overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. What? Could be worse than the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah? What could be worse than fire falling from heaven to destroy a city? What could be worse than Tyre and Sidon and the judgment that came upon those two cities? What Jesus has said in our text the sins of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are worse than these two stories that I just recounted from Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Lack of repentance in Jesus' call to repentance is worse. The lack of repentance when Jesus calls you to repent is worse than the judgment that came upon these cities. That's the point of this first half of our text. They received these cities, that is, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They received a greater light, a greater revelation than any of these other cities, and therefore God will hold them to a greater responsibility. This is similar to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we who now have the revelation of the Son of God, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For since the message that was given by the angels proved to be a reliable one, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you see the logic of these biblical authors, namely Jesus and the writer of Hebrews? If the judgment came on a lesser revelation that Sodom and Gomorrah had or Tyre and Sidon, Then how much more of a judgment will there be for those who see the risen Christ and say no to his call to repentance? The day of judgment will be worse for those that are on that path of failing to repent. Especially these cities in particular. You need to understand the historical context of what Jesus has done. In chapter 4, it tells us he's in these cities, he's doing miracles, and he is calling out that the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent. That's one short little summary, but you need to understand, what does that mean? What does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent? And if you don't, it will be worse for you. We must know what it means to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because this now is on us if we don't repent. In this historical context, I believe Jesus is talking about the way for them to receive life as the nation of Israel. It means that the consequences of the current actions of this city and the plans for which they're headed down a certain path are headed in the wrong direction, and it is headed toward death. That, I believe, is what Jesus is referring to when he calls out these cities. Look down at verse 23 again of chapter 11 in the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 23, when he's talking to his hometown, by the way, he spent a lot of time living in Capernaum, Jesus calls out to them and says, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. And at this point, some of you might be thinking, Oh, wow, they're not going to go to heaven. They're going to go to hell. But that's not the word for hell. In fact, it's the word Hades. This is one of those weird moments when you're reading an English translation and you're like, That's not English. How about you give us a translation of that Greek word Hades? Hades is the transliteration. It means you just take the sound of the Greek letters and put it into English. And you're not actually telling somebody what the word means, you're just saying how it sounds. So this word is Hades in the Greek, and it's Hades here in our English. Thank you very much, ESV. What does the word mean? It is the Hebrew and Greek word for grave, for going down into the ground of the grave. So he's saying, will you be exalted to the heavens? Now, is that mean you're going to go float up into the sky and live up in the sky? Because that's where the heavens are? No, 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 no. He is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 14 about a king who is exalting and puffing himself up. Somebody who wants to say, I'm great. And then Isaiah chapter 14 says, no, no, you are going down to Sheol, the Hebrew word for Hades. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 14 because he is a prophet, quoting a prophet, he is telling them, your plans of puffing yourself up and trying to be powerful and using violence will lead to your death and your downfall. In a nutshell, what are these plans of all three of these cities? We can look through historical and archaeological digs that these cities are well known for their desire to fight against the Roman Empire. Zealots. This was the breeding ground for zealots, Jews, meaning their zeal was to fight against the Roman Empire have not enough time to unpack all of the reasons and explanations by that, but you need to know that there's different groups of Jews in Jesus' ministry. Some of them you might have heard called Pharisees. Some of them are called Sadducees. Here, he's particularly talking about the Zealots. He has one of them in his 12 disciples, by the way, because his call to the kingdom of God being here is for all of these Jewish people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, whatever different group of Jewish people there were— Abandon your former way of Judaism and take on my way of Judaism. That's the call that Jesus is giving as he goes around to Jewish cities and tells these zealots, do not bear up your sword. Or as we heard in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourned, and the meek, and the merciful and the pure in heart, and the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the message Jesus is going around preaching to cities like Chorazin, and Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And do you think that they're like, yeah, that's right, let's get persecuted. They're like, No. I don't care how many miracles you do. I don't care how many times God authenticates your preaching ministry. We are not following that agenda. We are not turning around. We are going to take out the Roman government. Jesus says, you think you're going to boast yourself up like the Isaiah 14 Babylonian king and be the new king and ruler through violence? No, no, you're leading down to the grave. Woe to you. Woe to you. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, leave your cloak and give that to them as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is quoting in the Sermon on the Mount at different points the very things that these zealots would have been believing. For example, he quoted and said, You have heard it said, Love your neighbor, yes, love one another, but hate your enemies, namely the Roman government. Hate them. Take up sword against them. Do not turn the other cheek. Slap them back in the cheek. They ask you to go an extra mile, well then pull out their dagger and stab them in the back you see the difference between Jesus' kingdom and his way to be the nation of Israel and the Zealots? The nation of Chorazin, the nation of Bethsaida, and the nation of Capernaum. Woe to you. You have heard the message. You have seen the miracles. I am the long-awaited Messiah. Get on board. They said no. And I want to pause at this moment and make sure it's crystal clear to all of us. When we read a text like this, you need to remember that Jesus is patiently and persistently and gently, and boldly, and in every which way, preaching this message of turn, follow, come. This is not, well, I gave you a shot. I did a couple miracles. He is there for a season. He is there being patient. He is waiting. This is not God's swift, quick judgment, like he's upset and angry. and He lost his temper and says, oh, I'm just so frustrated with you guys. This is, okay, you've chosen. You're clearly not going to get on board with the way of Jesus and the message of reconciliation and the love of enemies. Well then, woe to you, for you are headed to the grave. And my friend, we need to then ask, in what ways have we as a society also bought into the lies of the world and started fighting for our life, our freedom, and our peace by not taking up the way of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount and the message of Jesus, and instead taking it into our own hands and doing things just like everyone else around us, in what ways are we headed down a path that leads to the grave? That's what you need to be asking yourself. That's how this text then applies to you. What does repentance look like for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, look at the teaching of Jesus how does that differ from the way that you live your life before we jump down to that beautiful calling come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me take my yoke and learn from me his yoke is his teaching it is his ways you should be following the teaching and ways of jesus His call to come that we're about to see is not a call to say, well, we can do whatever we want now. There's freedom in Jesus. No, there's freedom to follow Jesus. Not freedom to choose whatever way you want because he forgave you for all your sins. There's now freedom to actually obey and love God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's so different than, well, I'm free in Christ to live however I want. So friend, ask yourself with a friend this week, This is not something to play around with. Jesus says it would be worse for you than Sodom. Could you just imagine that for a moment? It would be better to be sitting in a city with fire falling down from heaven than listen to this message and not repent. Your sin and my sin and our failure to repent is far worse than we have ever dared imagine. In what way is your busyness and you're trying to keep up with everyone else around you failing to rest the way Jesus is calling us to by taking up his yoke? It is not a coincidence that if you peek ahead to chapter 12, verse 1 in the next section, right after Jesus contrasts the way of rejection to the way of invitation at the end of chapter 11, that he then has stories Of Sabbath rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest as the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about the Sabbath in, Lord willing, next week's message. But if there's one thing our text is calling us to that is the way of Jesus, let's start thinking about it already before we get to next week. Are you restful? Or are you tired? Not just tired because you worked hard like a good person should be working hard for Christ, but you're exhausted. This is a good sign that you are not carrying the yoke of Jesus, that you are carrying the burden of somebody else's expectations. That you are carrying the obligations and the expectations of your mom, your dad, your coworker, your boss, your demanding neighbor, your kids. You are wearing the yoke of somebody that is not Jesus Christ and his teaching. For his yoke is easy, his burden is light. That does not mean Christianity is easy, it still is a burden to wear. But in comparison to the burden that leads you and pushes you down to the grave, This burden, my friend, it gives life. It brings rest to the soul. This is why persecuted brothers and sisters around the world can have the burden of persecution, but rejoice in their sufferings because their soul is at well with God. Burden, oh yes. But when you have the gospel, light and easy. In what ways has technology creeped into your family without any sense of barriers from the rest of the world? Friends, I think increasingly a discipleship thing that the Christian community in general and embassy in particular we need to be thinking about in this modern world is how we are not restful because we are constantly working, constantly being entertained, constantly being bugged at. I challenge each of you, in terms of a Sabbath practice to get started before next week's message, take a period of time, four hours, one day, one Sabbath day of no cell phone, no TV, no Internet. It's not a demand. It is an invitation for rest for your soul. If something is too important, that you couldn't do something like that, something to find rest for your soul, then you might need to start asking with a friend, am I carrying the wrong yoke on my shoulders? And am I headed down to the grave? The tendencies and habits and the studies that are coming out about the way that we have just moved along, Christian and non-Christian included, here in the U.S. Did you know that the U.S. started with a bunch of Puritans that longed to see a day when a nation would prize a Sabbath day. The whole nation would do it together, collectively. It would be a a Sabbath society. Oh, how far we have come that we can't even gather to worship on a regular day of the week because we have so many activities and events vying for our attention. Parents, We need to be thinking about how we're raising our children not just with our technology but with our activities and our events and our career and educational advancements, our health and beauty. How many of these things are not because they are for our good but because they are our God? The difference you will know if this is for your good and if it's your God is you are weary and exhausted. There's a good chance you're headed on the wrong path, my friend. Not the path of Jesus. Not the path of his light and easy yoke. So when we stare into the face these cities, are we trying to get rid of the Roman Empire with swords? Well, no. But are we trying to find freedom and peace and satisfaction and a sense of security through some means that God did not call for us? in the teachings of Christ. If so, then you need to admit that we are more sinful and more flawed than we ever dared believe. Isn't it so great to know that that's not the end of the story? But if any of you in this room have any sense of, you know, on my best day, when I'm thinking clearly, there's some truth to what you just said. How do you not then just wallow in misery and despair? How do you not just go into a spiritual depression knowing that you are in fact far worse than what you're even thinking right now? Point two. At the very same time that we are far worse than we ever dared believe, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Look at verses 25 to 30. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first text makes it crystal clear, and so does the second in another way. But if you read both of these together, 20 to 30, is it obvious to you, as it is at least to me, that God demands you to repent, to turn from your way of being a human and follow the Jesus way of being a human? Is it clear to you that you should put your faith in Christ, repent, turn from that former way of thinking and believing and living and fully embrace the way of Christ? Is that clear to you that as you read this text, that God is calling and demanding and even inviting, come to me, and that you then have an obligation, you have a response that is due based on these words from God? I'm hoping that that's clear. If anyone wants to just say amen to that, that would be helpful. Otherwise, we need to just stop here and then keep belaboring this point. It is demanded of us, amen? Amen. Oh, the paradoxes of the Bible. While that is true, the glory of this text is that you choose him because he chose you. That the Father has hidden these things. What things? The revelation of the way of Jesus and it opened the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf and open the mouth of the mute to then praise Jesus. He does that work. Do you have to do that work? Yes. Does he have to do that work? Yes. Can we say amen to both of these things? Because Jesus himself is not just stating the fact, he is worshiping the Father for this reality. I praise you, Father, that you have in fact hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And you have chosen in your sovereign providence to reveal them to people who humble themselves like little children. For God's electing grace does not diminish our personal responsibility or our need for prayer or evangelism. It extinguishes all boasting. It fuels prayer and evangelism and missions. By the way, I'm just quoting from our statement of faith. Go read that article, chapter something, whatever. It's a glorious doctrine that this church has affirmed and believed that God does choose, but therefore we have to choose him all at the same time. And that, my friends, is gloriously good news, because if you are far worse than you ever dared imagine, then what hope do you really have sitting here today? Answer? None. Except for the expectation of a far greater judgment than that of fire falling from heaven what makes the good news so glorious is the very fact that point one is so crystal clear and that on the basis of that he still loves us yet what does the sentence say yet at the very same time knowing fully well that we are terrible people he loves us and accepts us in jesus more than we ever dared hope for and it is not on the basis of our performance Can you imagine something that would take a despondent, discouraged, depressed person that is wallowing in their pity of their awful spiritual life and their awful performance as a husband or a wife or a mom or a dad and their job and whatever else, and they're just, oh. And then you just tell them, but you're doing so good in this and this and this. No, point them to Jesus. Yet I praise the Father that you have decided to choose us. Point them to election. Point them to God's grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Why is it so amazing? Because he chose us knowing fully well who we weren't, not who we are. This is what makes this so beautiful. And Jesus is in song, he is in prayer, he is in glory. This is worship, my friends. That's why preaching is not an intellectual exercise to help the more learned in the understanding. It is a worship exercise for children, for little infants who need not more sermons or more books or more education or more classes or more seminars or more PhDs. What they need is childlike dependence on Jesus. So come to him like a little child, helpless, that doesn't know how to get up doesn't know how to change themselves, doesn't know how to dress for the day, that still needs basic help with their everyday life. Humble yourself to know, yes, you're far worse. You're a child. You need help. Admit it. Once you do, know that there is a father who is so willing to help. He has already helped by giving his son Jesus. And so, my friend, come to Jesus Come and realize that there is only one way to the Father. It is through the Son. That's what verse 27 is all about, that there is only because we know the Father because of the Son, and the Son knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son. It is only in Jesus Christ. There is no other way, no other option, and so therefore the invitation stands. Come to me. If you are weary and you are weighed down, it does not matter what is weighing you down. It is most likely here Jesus is talking about the Pharisees' yoke, The yoke of the Torah that is weighing down Jewish people. That's my guess in terms of its historical context. But what is weighing you down? What burdens are you carrying? Guilts of past sin come to Jesus. He deals with sin very well. He knows how to handle your sins. You could say that's his specialty. Do you have worry over your money, your job, your career, finding a place to live, wondering what's going to happen in the next couple months? Come to Jesus. His yoke is easy. Are you battered with relationships, with siblings, parents, or a spouse? Come to Jesus. His load is light. And if you're here and you are just tired, exhausted from the strain and stress of life, come to Jesus. He gives rest to the soul. How? How, though? How is this even an option? My friend, you and I can repent and turn from the judgment of heading down to the grave and the ultimate judgment on that last day because Jesus was judged in our place. That's why you can come. You will, my friend, be exalted to the heavens because Jesus was brought down into the literal grave We have had these things revealed to us, not because of our greatness, but because of the Father's pleasure. It was his gracious will or his good pleasure. It pleased him. That's why and that's how. Because of God's grace and his pleasure, we have been chosen, not because of our great wisdom and understanding, but because of his love. And you can find rest by faith because his work is finished. The work you need to gain access to the Father has already been done, so stop working for it. The work you need to find acceptance into a community of people that will love you unconditionally just as you are has already been accomplished. The work you need to find a sense of duty, of calling, a purpose and a meaning for your gifts and skills in this world has already been accomplished. You don't need to prove yourself to anyone anymore. When Jesus said on the cross, It is finished. It included all of those efforts. So we can take Jesus' easy yoke on our shoulders because he took the hardest yoke on his shoulders, the very wrath and judgment of God. And you can carry a light burden, not no burden. All of us will carry burdens. The question is, is yours light? Does it lead to the grave? You can carry this one because Jesus carried burdens the heaviest and the worst burden of all, the very sins of the world. That's why, that's how. The invitation still stands. Come to him. Let's pray.